Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Folklands, created and presented by Justin Chubb and Tim Downey. Episode 1, Hidden Things. My name's Justin Chubb, and together with my friend and fellow actor-writer Tim Downey, we are going to take you on an audio adventure. Our inspiration is a marvellous book called The Folklore, Myths and Legends of Britain, published by Reader's Digest back in 1973. And this is something Tim, as a young man, spooked himself out with and became fascinated by. So this lifelong fascination, which I also share, for standing stones, spooky things, we're going to try and explore in real life, meet some experts and other fans of the same sort of material, and travel around the country to some of the spookiest dark shadowy corners so come with us on our first adventure this is actually the Watford Gap ah this is the Watford Gap services actually hovering over the gap in a Costa Coffee in a Costa Coffee getting ready it's been an early start yeah, it's been an early start six o'clock and we've got about another what hour and a half yeah hour and a half to get to Worcester on mission number one the witch marks of Worcester. Witch marks of St. Swathens. So we're going to get a coffee. Some sort of yes. Latte. Yes. And we'll be good to go. We're off. Glamorous M6. So we're going to go and meet a chap called Brian Hoggard, who has written a book called Magical House Protection. The Archaeology of Counter-Witchcraft. Yes. Brian very kindly has agreed to meet us at a place called St Swithin's Church in Worcester. He's going to talk us through some things that are concealed within the church. I was reading up about Worcester and witchcraft and witch trials, and there was only one major witch trial, which is in 1680, so the fact that you get 
all these graffiti, these daisy wheels and hidden scratchings and marks of graffiti on a church in Worcester is, is fascinating. And why they did them? Like, why are they there? What are they protecting? Why are they in the place they are in? I think they're up in the belfry or somewhere like that. So is that an opening? Is that a weak spot? Yeah. You know, because the idea was openings into buildings like chimneys, hearths, sometimes doorways, maybe steeples, we don't know, yeah. towers, yeah. were seen as the sort of openings to unseen forces. A very interesting thing I read is that one of the major differences about English witchcraft to European witchcraft and how the trials went yeah. is the English were fixated with familiars. So all those little gaps and things like that were ways in which your little rabbit or your fly or spider could get into your building. There are these other concealed bodies, dried cats, dogs, other animals that have been found in centuries-old buildings. And I think the idea was you might set animal against an animal and they had things as well called spirit traps because no matter how powerful your denizen of evil may have been yeah it couldn't work out how to untie a knot they were so, not scouts uh, your denizen of hell was not a scout or a, or, or a beaver no no okay. and one thing I think that hangs over all of this for me is did they actually work is there any reference is there any uh, anything at all that says yes we did this this and this and sure enough my gout cleared up there are several other examples of the use of witch bottles in magic and of concealed bottles even into the 20th century Jeffrey Patton related a family story to me by email in September 2000 concerning witchcraft beliefs in a North Devon village My mother-in-law has told us the tale about the farm where my wife's grandfather was brought home on the farm above it. My wife's forebears in the lower farm were going through a bad patch. Plague of fleas, sick stock, disease, crops, etc. They naturally assumed, as one does around here, that someone was witching them. The old lady in the farm above was the prime suspect as she was known to have powers inherited. They decided to contact a white witch to put things right, and one had been recommended in Exeter. They rang him, and he told them to come down to Exeter on the train where he would meet them at the station to get the details. He told them to put some water, the word she used, into a jar and put it in the chimney corner. The lid of the jar had to be tightly sealed. Devon farmhouses have large chimneys with a grate in the centre and are often large enough to have seats in them sometimes. He said that within 24 hours, the person who was witching them would have to come to them for the jar as they would not be able to pass water. They would then be released from the witching when the jar was handed over. I asked if the old lady came for the jar, to which my mother-in-law answered, Oh yes, she was in a hell of a state. She promised that nothing like that would ever happen again. However, the families did not speak to each other for about 30 or 40 years. I think the witching took place about 1910. My mother-in-law was born in 1920, so it was quite fresh in people's minds when she was a little girl. So I was reading this story about this guy in Hertfordshire, in Stevenage, who was very concerned about grave robbing. There was a huge amount of grave robbing for the London 
surgeries because of the need of bodies. Yeah. And it was a constant sort of traffic that would happen um, between the home counties in London for the bodies. So this guy was very concerned that he would get dug up. So he got his brother to well, place him in a lead-lined coffin and then put him in the roof of his house, literally resting on the rafters. Uh, this was in something like 17-something. And the, the local steamages in the old town never moved it. So it was stayed in the family for like another 60 years. It then changed to be an inn. Yeah. And still they kept the coffin in the rafters that you could see. So they had an outside little, little area and this was in the barn outside the main house. So it became quite a curio that you would go and you would go and see this man's coffin that was in the roof. Yeah. Even then, when it changed from being an inn to a local Halifax branch, it was still there. <laughs> it was still in the rafters. I think it's been moved now. Um, and there were lots of other tales about the soldiers during World War II were billeted there and, and took bones as good luck charms wow. to then carry on to the fields of battle. So then when they came to open it, it was completely empty. Good luck. Wow, that's a great story. But and that's a little bit like the idea of the relics, the pilgrim relics, you know, the endless fingers of St. <laughs> whoever. Endless fingers. Endless. This has touched this, this has touched that. Jesus's toes. Yeah. Yeah. Briloquies. I didn't realise they're broken up into three different groups. So you get first-class reliquies, i.e. A, a finger bone or hair or something like that, something that is actually from that particular saint. Yeah. And then second class, which is that uh, I've gone in and I've touched my handkerchief on said oh, bone. Yes. So then that becomes a reliquy as well. The veil of Veronica. There you go. There you go. And then there's a third set as well, which is then something, a third thing that has then touched that other thing Good that luck. has once touched that thing. No, no, no. That's sort of the Aldi of the... <laughs> Reliquaries. <laughs> this is the church. The destination is on your left. Thank you, Google Maps. Arrived. Brian, good to meet you. And Tim's you. just paying for the parking. Lovely Tim, to meet you. Nice to meet you both. Thank you so much for your time, Brian. That's yeah, alright. It seems like there's suddenly an upsurge of interest in all of this kind of area of folklore, hidden marks, hidden symbols, this fascinating area of... When maze. I first started researching that area, there wasn't anybody else doing it. There was a guy who had been doing it in the 40s and 50s called Ralph Merrifield. So I sort of picked up his baton, if you like, in a expanding, more detailed analysis of how widespread these practices were. Yeah. And um, the word spread about my work. Then more people were doing work in their own little discrete areas. Yeah. Thankfully, no one's done the same national type or international survey that I did. Is it quite a new discipline? I suppose so because it's so interdisciplinary. It doesn't fall into any of the normal academic categories because it involves the history of architecture, archaeology, animal biology, you know, and mm. the way animals decay and yeah. rot. And, and there's, uh, there's all kinds of different materials involved and all kinds of different buildings mm. and um, trying to sort of do some detective work to work out who was putting these things in and then why. Yeah. There's folklore involved. There's studies of magic involved. You know, so it's a very, very interdisciplinary topic. What was the first spark? Was it finding an object yourself? 
since I was a child. I've always been interested in the paranormal and ghosts and the supernatural. Yeah. As many people did, I read an enormous amount of fantasy literature and stuff about wizards and magicians. And so I've always been interested in strange things. And I basically, I found out that all of these myths and legends that you read about, there's a little grain of truth in all of it that set all of these authors off. Yeah. And so there are actual mysteries out there. There are genuine, unusual practices, genuine beliefs that people had that made them do strange rituals and made other people then react to those. Are witch marks or are marks like this in a church particularly unique? Well, the place we find them the most is churches, but that's mainly because um, they're publicly accessible. Yeah. I've been into lots of secular dwellings and found marks there too. But by and large, you know, churches are usually open to the public. Mm. And so you can go in there and scoot around and look for marks quite easily. And there are lots of them in churches, to the extent that I would say that it was tacitly accepted by the clergy oh, in many right. areas. Why is like, that? Why, why was it accepted? Because surely that would have been seen as, this is a, an old superstition. Oh, well, it's not old. I mean, I've got examples going right up to the 1920s of some of these oh, marks right. being applied to buildings. Mm. I call them protection marks, by the way. Usually, they were put there to protect against witchcraft. So I can see why witch marks seems to explain it. And it would be a good name for it, albeit that the marks that people are referring to, there's about three or four different ones that all have very different meanings. So, for example, the Marian marks, which are the VVs or the Ms, yeah. that's actually a devotional mark. That's somebody who wants to bring the blessing of the Virgin Mary to a place, to protect a place. And then you've got the Daisy Wheel, which goes by many other names, like Rosette, Hexfoil, you know, lots of people use different names for it. But that one, um, in my, the course of my research, seems to be very clearly linked as an early solar symbol. You can find it as widespread as from sort of North Korea throughout the USA, you know, and North Africa and Russia, and yeah. it's everywhere, you know. Um, is that born out of its own culture? Well, that one, the very, very earliest ones that look like the ones we generally find in churches, for example, tend to be about 1600 BC, and you can find them, there's, there's a good example in Egypt, which is very clearly datable. Yeah. But you also find it throughout the Mediterranean, throughout all of the civilizations around the Mediterranean, and way beyond but then the oldest marks that look like it are actually from Neolithic chambered tombs in Ireland from about 4000 BC. Wow. So like some, of the earliest, some of the earliest depictions of the sun actually resemble the daisy wheel. How were these things communicated? So you've got widely <coughs> diverse areas, but the same symbols. There's not much written material, presumably, about what no. are secretive signs. There's, first of all, the British Empire, and so you've got a practice that we find in this country that would have definitely been carried by people who knew about it to all the places that the British Empire touched. Mm. And then other forms of migration, just general sort of European travel, you know, in travel between the British Isles and Europe. I mean, obviously, we know that where you find it in America and where you find it in Australia, you don't find it pre-white people arriving there and okay. taking over. The okay. earliest examples are pre-Christian, but it seems to be, because it's also a very elegant geometric pattern that you can create with a compass, it has been used as part of um, people learning geometry. So your typical architect would probably come across how to make it as a way of laying out a certain pattern or a certain type of building. But certainly the vast majority of examples we come across that are graffitied on are not done by people training to be architects, right? Yeah. <laughs> these, are, these, are, these are put on doors, they're put on chests. There's no need for them to be there. Yeah. You know, this is... Uh, and, well, I'll show you the ones in the pew over here in a minute, and there's one up in the bell-ringing chamber. When I read your book, I got most excited, I suppose, by the <laughs> evidence of darkness chapter, mm. where, yeah. you know, genuine curses, human effigies and dolls and things yeah. that make the hair on the back of your neck stuff. Absolutely. But one of, one of the things I often 
say in my lectures about the evidence for darkness is that when we think of the subject of witchcraft, you think of witches, right? Now, I don't necessarily think that all of these people that did these things are or would have even considered themselves to be witches. I think what they were is people who grew up in an environment where the supernatural was real, where you were taught to protect your house from the supernatural. Mm. And when they got enraged by something, whether through jealousy or through being assaulted or wronged in some other way, Mm. their idea of revenge might be to use magic. And it wasn't necessarily that they thought of themselves as a witch. It's yeah. just that they would ask, you know, how should I do this? When you walk past someone and you, someone gives you a nasty look or something, or just sort of mm-hmm. whispers a, something that you think, oh, that might be a curse, yeah. then I suppose as the receiver of that, you think, I think I've been cursed. All the stories you've heard as you've been growing up mm-hmm. trigger the paranoia, and you have to take action to do something to repel it. got the idea of these open spaces, hearths, mm-hmm. chimneys, doors, openings where evil forces mm-hmm. can come into houses. They're leaks in your otherwise watertight house, aren't they? But was the <clears throat> idea of hiding charms, protective mechanisms, partly that they were hidden, so the witch or the evil force wouldn't know that they were necessarily there? Yeah, and also, um, if you're going to put a dead cat in your house, you don't want it to be visible <laughs> in your front room, yes. or, or a bottle of wee, or an old shoe, you know? So these yeah. are things that you don't necessarily want to have within sight, but also part of it is that it should be secret, because you don't want someone who might be about to attack you to know where your weaknesses are. There's a mixture of like really overt and really covert methods of defense overt ones being like in italy in the mediterranean and as you said in india you know the the kind of evil eye symbol Mm. you go further east into china you know you've almost got the same thing happening through feng shui Mm. mirrors and things in windows you know it's very similar deflecting badness yeah in front of open doors because money flows out money and the dragon comes in through one door and out the other it's basically it's all about energies moving around isn't it Mm. good good ones and bad ones Mm. but you know but back to what we were saying about churches some priests seem to have tacitly accepted the practice in their churches like if you go to wells cathedral for example there's some alabaster tombs in that church that are literally covered in up to a thousand different marks not all of them are apotropaic yeah they're not all evil averting you know but there are some mixed in there within all the initials and everything and there's just no way that those tombs could have got like that and people not known about it would someone call you up to say look you know we're, we're renovating this old barn we were pulling down a piece of wood we were pulling this down and we found this huge pile of shoes and we don't know what it is would you come and have a look at it yeah basically that happens most weeks um <clears throat> most in, weeks yeah yeah in the digital age i'd say they usually email rather than call but yeah, yeah. They, they it does happen really regularly you know people i've got people who um are interested in my work and regularly tell me of things that they come across in their local areas. So I've got people who act like regional reporters for me, uh, yeah. in a way. But also, um, people do just, you know, they'll, they'll find something when they're doing a renovation or restoration, and they're like, what on earth is this? They start searching on online, whether it be Google or where, whatever, and then they, they come across my work. So normally, I get a call or an email. If it's not too far away, I'll arrange to go and do a visit. So I go and have a look, um, take lots of photos, because um, you have to act 
oh, it sounds like a line from Team America. You have to act <laughs> fast, you know, right. and uh, you have to act yeah, fast because, because things it, will be moved, things change. Yeah, it's a building project. You know, they've, they've got to get the work done, and um, they want to tidy up. And a lot of times, people are grossed out by some of the things they find in the walls, that and, be the next and they want to people actually quite scared. But they suddenly open up yeah. a wall, and suddenly all these or a cat comes out, or whatever it is. Yeah, the cats really freak people out. Uh, yeah, they do. But yeah, I mean, I'd say most of the time it's builders who find these objects, okay? And they, they often don't tell the owners of the properties because it would hold things up. It would slow them down. But some builders are very superstitious as well, you know, and they'll see it and they'll respectfully deal with it, but on the quiet, and they won't necessarily tell anyone. Some people are completely less bothered and would just sell it. If it's a witch bottle, for example, you can sell those. Uh, if you've got um, a stop it up, Bellamine bottle found from beneath the floor. You can sell it online for up to fifteen hundred pounds. Dave, this builder that I knew, yeah, he found this dried cat um, when they were doing Cream Court, which is a National Trust property in Worcestershire, very popular one. Yes. And in the roof of the stable block, it was all timbers with plastic infill. You know, classic old structure, basically. And uh, so he took this panel away, and there, sitting on the beam, was a dried cat. looked like it had just gone to sleep and it was just surrounded by all its fur that had just dropped out as it dried out and anyway all the builders froze he tells me that um they all went quiet and stopped work basically um were fascinated by it but also horrified by it the site foreman said to dave that he had to take it away and he didn't want to take it away and nobody else wanted to take it away in the end he was commanded to take it away uh, which he reluctantly did and he said he went down the stairs went to put it in a skip outside and he's going to do it quite reverently because he felt that it was special and uh, so he did that and on his way back in going back up the stairs a newly installed plaster panel fell off the roof and dashed his head open and, um, and that's a nasty accident of yeah, course right but, um, but he and all his colleagues felt that that was bad luck brought on by moving the cat and you know they very very clearly associate the two things when it comes to items of clothing or shoes is it placed in a certain direction or is it placed in a certain way? I, I wish I knew is the answer to that. <laughs> um, shoes are a funny one because um, some places you find literally hundreds in one building, um, like the plough at Sittingbourne in Kent, which is no longer there. Okay, It was demolished, but um, it was carefully demolished. <laughs> and they discovered um, three or four what we call middens or collections of rubbish essentially that had been dropped into various voids in the house and in these voids were huge caches of shoes Mm -hmm. and um, and it seems like generation after generation were adding their own shoes to this but I think that the shoes through the personal connection with the wearer you know through the unique shape of the wearer's foot um, it becomes a a decoy you know so um, if if there's some if you imagine there's a witch or a wizard somewhere who hates you and is working up some really negative harmful energy to send to you if you are someone who believes in magic you're going to imagine that this force is somehow traveling across the landscape towards you or is trying to find you Mm. and so it's trying to sniff you out it's trying to get into your house and it can't because the windows are shut the doors are shut protection marks here and there there's a dried cat there witch bottle there but the chimney's open plunges down the chimney looking for you and it thinks it's found you when it finds your shoe because there's this contains the essence of you yeah because it's not intelligent it can't discriminate The, the people who've put the shoe there they're trying to fool it so let's put this decoy here so that they'll attack it instead of me. And, and a shoe is one way of doing that. But also there's a historic belief since the early 14th century that you could trap um, spirits or evil in footwear. 
Is this Sir John, St John Sean? He was incredibly popular, um, John Sean, and he was reputed to have cast the devil into a boot. And, um, and for about 250 years, pilgrimages to his shrine were more popular than pilgrimages to Thomas Beckett. Or in fact, really? similar. Thomas Beckett was slightly more, yeah. but the next down was John Sean. Wow. And it was so popular, there were so many people travelling to see John Sean's shrine, mm. which was in a village called North Marston in Buckinghamshire. You know that people would make donations when they'd visit a shrine mm. and, and they yeah. would um, buy pilgrim badges and things yeah. like that. So there's a lot of money coming through this little church at North Marston. But the pilgrim badge, you see, there's the saint holding a great big long boot, you know, looking like a thigh-high boot. Yeah. There's a little devil's head poking out of the top. Brilliant, amazing. Should we have a look at some things? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So let's go and have a look at Pew 36. I mean, in churches, you get a lot of people doing the, the usual, these are my initials, this is the date, but then you get these other marks that seem to go a bit beyond that. But even those marks that are initials, that when it comes to sacred buildings, they're again hoping to kind of hitch a ride on the yeah, sacredness it's a, it's a within it. It's yeah. a church, it's a place of worship, it's got Yeah, you've got divine spirit. energy, which yeah. might help keep people away. But you know, when people put their initials on, they're identifying themselves, aren't they? You know, so they're taking a risk, but they need to identify themselves in order for the good energy to come to them. Which is why I think that there's some tacit understanding by some of the clergy. It's funny, because in the period that I'm talking about, mainly the 14th century onwards, the busiest time is obviously during the time of the witch trials, you know, so we're talking sort of 17th um, century predominantly. Mm. But I don't think people thought of things as being pagan necessarily. A certain group of types of magic were okay and people accepted them. And then other types kind of crossed the line. And that's where it started to become a bit more dangerous. It was a heightened, sensual environment. Hearing more, noticing more, seeing more, much more connected with birds, animals, wind, rain, sun. Basically all of that was much more visceral. If someone or something died near you, you would potentially see it or know about it, or hear its death groans, or whatever, you know, you were much more connected with mortality. And then that inevitably connects you with death and the supernatural, and the idea of spirits and magic. The landscape around you has this depth of meaning to it. There are spirits there that you can't see normally, but if you're left on your own somewhere, potentially they start to crowd in a bit all of a sudden, you know. It's a very different psychological sensual and emotional environment really yeah. Yeah. you know Corfe Castle near there there's um, two little villages called Langton Matravers and Worth Matravers part of the National Trust Estate and they found a bottle underneath a parish boundary wall and when you hold it it's solid but within a couple of minutes it's liquid okay, and it feels really peculiar but the main ingredients are beef fat and spring water which we think is from a nearby holy well and so the thinking is that some cattle had died the person who was looking after the cattle felt that it was maybe because of witchcraft and so one of their animals part of their fat along with some holy water so whatever was going to go and try and grab this fat would then be neutralised by the holy water there was another bit in the book where you sort of describe the old church services before the King James Bible if you could if you had a time travelling machine and a video camera and you filmed a service in the pre-reformation church you could probably use that as a depiction of a black rite going on you've got people dressed in strange robes speaking a language you don't understand, doing a mysterious thing to do with blood and bodies and flesh, yeah. candlelight everywhere and incense everywhere, mm. images of hell on the walls. It's, it's, scary, it's funny yeah. how our horror film idea 
yeah. completely mirrors that. Yeah. And in fact, that sounds yeah. more hellish than divine. But you're surrounding yourself with the images exactly as you say, yeah. that we would go, well, no, this is, this is bad. They literally didn't understand the basic concepts of Christianity. People could be asked, you know, who is Jesus? And they'd say, oh, is that God's uncle? But there's a really um, interesting book called um, Europe, colon, Was It Ever Really Christian? by a chap called Anton Vessels. And what, what he essentially does is he looks afresh, if you like, at Christianity in the medieval period and says, well, you know, because people didn't understand the concepts and hadn't read the Bible... Were they Christian? Well, what, what they were doing was they were worshipping a pantheon of gods, right? So they had God, yeah. Jesus, Virgin Mary, many saints. It's almost like a pagan religion, right? So you've got the same thing. You know, you've got Zeus, Apollo, all these other lesser gods. Yeah. You know, and they're all being worshipped for different reasons and prayed to very specifically for help with specific things. People still venerate holy wells, and that's a very pagan thing. Basically, a nature religion, isn't it? Yes. You know, and like ancient groves, ancient trees. You know, all of this stuff has continued. Like early Christianity was so magical. You know, you could believe that a spirit could be inside a trout. You know, <laughs> you know. Honestly, I've seen some very interesting trout. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wouldn't put it past it. You know, you've got fairy beliefs. Got people believing in seeing ghosts. Yeah. The thing that we tend to think of as the scariest things with Christianity is like demons, devils, and they all come from Christianity. Yeah. Everything else is more organic. It's been less imposed on us, you know, less created by a strange imposed belief system. Yeah. So there's this twisting of images, the idea of Pan, which then later becomes the idea of Satan, that idea of someone with goat feet and horns and things like that and those deities of the rivers and yeah. spirits of the very animist. They would see it as another source of supernatural power. If you've got this big god who can work miracles, then that might be useful to include in your magical rites. Yeah. And so written charms, we've got abracadabra, we've got astrological symbols, a seal from a grimoire, and yet the text is all about God, Jesus, please help protect my cows and my sheep and my hedges and my trees. And so you're just trying to draw on everything possible that might. Anything that might work. This is what I mean, it's that the more you get into the magic of the early modern period in particular, the more you see that people are doing these incredible things, which now would be regarded as totally heretical, like doing some big ritual and laying out a circle on the floor and getting to work on trying to raise the dead or whatever. That could be a vicar. You have pagans and Christians when you look back in the archaeological record, but actually when you scrutinise it, the people who are so-called monotheists are worshipping many saints and... Mm, yeah. There's a little place on the Isle of Wight that is a Roman villa, as you have these beautiful mosaic floors depicting these oh, very Christian things. But then you'll have a little altar in the side, just in a little side room, which mm. could be for like a water god or Mithras or some other element, kind of keeping in... Hedge your bets. Hedge your bets. Yes, we are openly Christian, but we will we'll have our little, our little altar quietly in the corner as well. The Roman Empire was full of all these strange little cults that would sometimes fight each other and everything. And if you said you're not allowed to worship that anymore, but you worship this one, mm. you can still do your other thing, but just keep it on the down low. Yeah. Everyone's a bit more manageable all of a sudden because they're all speaking the same language, if you like. Shall I show you these marks? Yes, yes. yes. That would be great. So, <clears throat> so this one has a whole bunch of initials at that end, and it's got um, other initials at this end here. You can see them all. Oh, yeah. They all seem to be 18th century in character, you know, in terms of the, the sort of font that people are using. Yeah. You know? But if you go to Pew 36, this one here... Scanning along here, we come to a circle. Right now, circles are like for protection. 
and then we find these two overlapping circles. This, these are basically crudely drawn daisy wheels. Yeah, yes, this one really is extraordinary. Yeah. Mm. And that's quite hard to do. And obviously they weren't that great at it, you can tell. <laughs> but you know, this is what you often get. I mean, somebody here knew that circles were going to help protect them. And overlapping circles, the daisy wheel mark, is a good mark to, to use for that. Being an ancient solar symbol, as they are still currently regarded in Romania, my way of thinking with this is that the light of the sun keeps the darkness away. Yeah. 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 And it also chimes with the deliberate burn marks that we often find as well, mm. where people are repeatedly burn in the same spot and scrape away the carbon layer to create these big, deep burn marks. Yeah. So with yeah. the burn marks, I think what's happening is where the surface of the wood is being burned away, if you imagine that physical objects will have a ghost as well, yeah, so where you burned it away, there's now a ghost in the shape of candle flame. If you imagine there's a veil between the living and the dead, yeah. on the other side, there's now a candle flame. You also describe in the book this idea of ritual killing or of creating a kind of spiritual guardian, a, a dead cat becoming a guardian on a spiritual level in the yeah, same sort of way. that's very much what I think is going on. I think it fits with the way people used to think, you know, with the ideas of sympathetic magic, and it looks like something it can cure something. You know, it, it chimes with all those ways of magical thinking. Basically, delve into the world of anthropology. Yeah. You see that everywhere, everybody believes in magic. Okay, so it's like a predisposition. No one's satisfactorily explained why, right? And so either there's some reality to magic, or there's some evolutionary purpose in fearing the unknown. Just generally, yeah. obviously, you could go back to Stone Age societies and say, well. There could be a saber-toothed tiger in that cave, so it'll do us well to, yeah. to fear that darkness. And then you imagine even greater horrors further down. But yeah, there's something about humans and, uh, and fear of the supernatural that probably keeps us nimble. But also, um, maybe there is something to it. Maybe there is something beyond us that is dangerous. People seem to generally believe in magic. They seem to believe that you can project a force from one person to another person or group of people, and it can do good or ill. The marks we're looking at here on the pew, would they be reactive to something bad happening, or do you think we don't we don't really know? I suppose I think it's it's got to be both, hasn't it? I mean, you know, mm. there's going to be sometimes where people have a, a slight paranoia about mm. the fact that people can do these things and think, oh, I'd better put something there in case in case something happens. And I think that sometimes when that happens, it's actually um, builders doing it on behalf of people. We're going to do this building here. Do you want us to put in we some extra protection for you? Yeah. It'll cost you for an, an extra, extra guinea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly though. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, and um, and certainly some of the, some of the marks occasionally um, when you go up into a roof space. The marks are upside down and the wrong way up and out of reach, which means that they were put on when the frame was being laid out by the builders, yeah. and then the frame was erected, and so these marks end up being the wrong way around and upside down. Mm. Like these daisy wheels, I've got an example in my book of a really posh clock that has a daisy wheel engraved inside the clock where you can't even see it. Right. And it's inscribed on the metalwork inside, so someone's included that yeah. mm. in their service as part of the making of the clock. You had alchemists selling their services in high street mm. shops, you know? Yeah. Um, and part of what they did was offer you a protective recipe from time to time. Yeah, so you get a mixture of things, you know? Sometimes things have been put in by the tradespeople, sometimes applied by the occupants later, yeah. who have come across a fear at a later point. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to see the ones up in the bell ringing chamber? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, so you can see we're in the medieval tower, but they basically remodelled it in the, in the 18th century. So this, this tower is really quite high. If we go to the top, you get a lovely view of the city. It's, it's, it's worth a look. Yeah. Lovely. As long as you don't mind hauling yourself out of a hatch at the top. So uh, let's go. Let's go. Right. Mind your feet on the medieval stairs. Okay? So we're going up. We're on a kind of spiral stone staircase, winding our way up. It's a bit colder in here. It's not much colder. It's very chilly. So this is the organ gallery. Behind you is an authentic 1795 organ. It's a very rare early example of a fancy church organ. Yeah. But this particular spot, I'm going to pause here and, and point over there. Yeah. Because I'm pointing at the site of an apparition. Okay. I won't name him because this is a public broadcast, but there's a senior bell ringer here who's been involved with this church since he was a child. He's a very Christian man, works for the Ministry of Defence, intelligent chap, doing a very sensible job. Doesn't believe in ghosts or the supernatural, but he is Christian. Yeah. And anyway, he says he came up here one day, as he often does, been up here many, many times, got to this point, and just the little staircase here leading up into the bell ringing chamber, he says, a black shadow of a man, the phrase that he used. There was the shadow of a man coming down from the bell ringing chamber to the organ gallery. And it passed sort of partly through him, if you like. And he just froze and thought, what on earth is this? He said he wasn't scared, but he's been confused ever since that happened. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's just this spot here. Um, Nobody else has seen it, but when... Sarah was here, you know, when we brought the dog into the bell ringing chamber, the dog suddenly did become quite anxious. But, you know, the the impression was that something had alarmed him and he wanted to get out of the bell ringing chamber, which is where we're just about to go. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, so up up you go, up to the left. Okay. And there's a slight void in the floor, so obviously don't go into the void. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're going up the last bit of the spiral staircase into a square bell ringing tower with... Hanging bell ropes. It's much colder. It's much here. colder in here. So anyway, the bell ringing chamber, um, it's always a bit creepy, isn't it? Don't, don't touch the ropes, by the way, because the bells will all have been left in the upright position. So they do look a bit like hangman's They do. Ropes. Very it does look a bit creepy. Yeah. And of course, the place right behind yourself is where this apparition was seen. Um, uh, apart from this octagon but here, which you can lift out if you remove these take this octagon out and there's a great big void there so for the entire period of the building project which I worked here that whole time there was just a big gap there with a little scaffolding rail around it to stop you from dying 
And, um, have you got a theory then that the shadowy apparition might have plummeted to his doom? Or? No, I haven't actually. I don't. I honestly can't explain it. I mean, all I can say is that this tower we now know because of the recent dendrochronology work. We know that now this space would have existed in 1432. Amazing. Wow. And for the person to have been seen on the stair, apparently going from one bit to another, it must be someone who's existed here from that point, that not before. Yeah, yeah. But we do know that there was a tower here probably before that, in the earlier building that was here, and may even have been a Saxon tower, but where exactly that was, we don't know. Since Swithin is a Saxon saint, and this church within the archaeology of the city sits just in the very corner of the Saxon defensive ditch. Oh. So this is just within the Saxon boundary of the city. Yeah. And, and it's you, dedicated. Brian, in your long hours here, probably in the early hours of the morning, have you ever sensed any presence or apparition? Or... Oh, well, I'm, I'm a bit of a weirdo, so I tend to sort of sense strange things wherever, all the time, anywhere, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think humans, wherever they've existed, there's, there's like... You can sort of feel like a trace of them, maybe, you know. But yeah, I've not had any direct experiences of my own here. But other people who I've brought around the church do report feeling a bit spookier in here. This is the chamber with two of the best bits of, you know, markings for keeping evil away, basically. One of them is the ancient solar symbol, the daisy wheel, and the other one is a pair of marks that are both Christian marks for trying to secure defence for a place you know protection for a place mm-hmm. and we've got one protecting that window and another one protecting that door so it is interesting that that is where this thing mm-hmm. was seen yeah. I think so if you look at the window reveal you see there's a lot of graffiti mm-hmm. on that yes. side in particular most of it is names in little cartouches and some of it's quite calligraphic you know some of it's nicely done mm-hmm. some of it's very crudely scratched a lot of the dates on that side are 17 something so 1737 I can see and so we know that when, when they rebuilt the nave, they also remodelled the tower at the same time. So the plaster in this room is 1730s plaster. So any marks okay. in the plaster must be since then. Yeah. <clears throat> but the marks um, over there, which I'm going to show you in a minute, are in stone. So they could be as old as early as 15th century. So just here is your daisy wheel. Do you see that? So. Yes. This is a complex one, but a simple one would be made of seven circles. So you do a circle, you put the point of the compass on the edge of that circle and draw another circle. Mm. Where they intersect, you put the point of the compass there and draw another one. And so you've gone all, all the way around the original circle, and that gives you a lovely six-petaled design. It's beautiful. Yep. And a lot of times, as we find here, someone has then rotated around a certain number of degrees and made another daisy wheel on the same spot. So this, instead of being a six-petal circle, this is a 24-petal circle. So it does look more like a daisy, because you've got all these multiple petals going all the way around. You see people calling it a rosette. I don't like that term, because roses have five petals. Mm. It's a different shape of rose, though. Yeah, exactly. And often, you know, when you have these complex ones like this, they really do look like daisies. Mm. So this one, you can see above it, there's a date. And that date, I think, is 1754. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then above that, there's a pair of VVs, which are overlapping VVs, which could be Marian marks, unless it's Wally Winterbottom, yeah. <laughs> Wilhelmina Wiley. What does the the double V sort of stands for? A Latin. Timothy Easton is a chap who began the study into protection marks, 
Where I was researching, we were finding lots of these VVs, and so was he. We knew there was some significance to them because they appear to often be in association with windows, doors, etc. Mm. Anyway, some Catholic friends of his suggested that it could be Virgo Virginum, which is Virgin of Virgins, right? Yeah, yeah. which is a, a concept within the Catholic liturgy. Some people have since argued that that particular phrase wasn't commonly used in England. Either way, what we get is these overlapping Vs, but we also get it flipped over, so it's like Ms. Yeah. 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 Vs and Ms, Virgins and Marys. Virgin Mary, right? And it's the current monogram for the Virgin Mary. So if you were to go and look at the Vatican's website for any images to do with the Virgin Mary, you would come across the Ms and Vs, the monogram of the Virgin Mary. And then also, sometimes you find these M symbols with the overlapping upside down Vs. But the legs of the M sort of taper outwards slightly. Well, there's one in the cathedral right next to the tomb of Prince Arthur. This is King Henry VIII's older brother who died. And he would have been King Arthur. Yes. Right? Yeah. And uh, anyway, so he's in Worcester Cathedral. And on a little shelf in his tomb, there is this M with the tapering legs. And I wondered about that for a long time because I've seen another really good example on a memento mori on a tomb in Exeter Cathedral, which is a skull on the base of a tomb mm. and it's got a great big M on the forehead that someone scratched on with the tapering legs which I think is another Marian mark yeah. okay but anyway if you look at the palm of your hand can you see the, the M with the tapering legs yeah okay yes. right. and it's like you've got the M for Maria is actually on the palm of your hand and there are some churches in Gloucestershire in particular mm. which have a hand engraved on the door and some of them even have that M with the tapering legs inscribed within it the palm is like stop but also Maria yeah keep out Double protection. Yeah, yeah, double protection. Double protection. If we look over there at the entrance to the bell ringing chamber, instead of the window to the bell ringing chamber, you'll see there's a VV on the stonework on the right, right next to the door jam, and also there's a crossed I. So there's an I with a cross through it, which is the old symbol for Jesus. Mm, Jesus. Yeah. Oh, here, yes. Look. Right. So in the stone work, there's a very, very clear V or W mark on the I. Someone's put this VV here to invoke the protection of the Virgin Mary on this place. Yeah. Yeah. Virgin Mary, please protect this space. Yeah. Don't let any bad stuff come in, basically. Yeah. And then someone's also put the mark for Christ there as well. Christ the C too. Yeah. Hopefully someone's yeah. added the C yeah, in case you weren't sure that it was Jesus. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus Christ. There yeah. it is. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Giving him his full name. <laughs> it's a nice, nice old room, isn't it, this one? Mm, yeah. And there would have been people ringing in here since 1432. And are the bells still rung now? They are. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, the bells are in good shape, basically. But yeah, do you want to go up a bit further? Yeah, yeah, love to. Okay. love to. It will be a bit dark and a bit cold. Okay. Great. Oh, cold day. Okay. You can see in the corner there's a lovely 15th century banded iron chest. There used to be stuff full of documents that are all now in the record office. It's one of the original clocks for the tower over there. There's a, a chime mechanism from the 18th century. I mean, like it was a music box. So it yeah, spin it is. And it would ping like a music box. It was meant to play a tune, but it never yeah. worked properly. And there's a nice little hole there, so you can see where you've just been. Oh, yeah. So we're looking through the floor down into the bell ringing chamber. These big stones here are the original pendulums. Oh, wow. Those are very big. And should we go into the roof space? Oh, yes, please. Okay, so we're just crawling through a little narrow space. You have to bend down a bit. That very tall ceiling you could see when you were in the nave downstairs, you're stood on top of that now. So if you were to leap over this fence, you would almost certainly die. You would go crashing through the laths and the plaster of the roof structure, which you can see, and they create a nice kind of barrel shape. And we're looking at what sort of era this was put in. This is 1730s. But the thing is, there's been an awful lot of recycling in this church. There's a really big braced timber here, you can see. 
Yeah. And if you look straight down below it, you'll see there's a stone with an X mark on it. And so that's a bit of Romanesque decoration from a potentially 12th century church that was formerly on this site. Probably was part of a band of X marks that went around the perimeter of the church that's on the outside. A decorative motif. Exactly, yeah. And then here, if you see these two big braced timbers, go a third of the way along and straight down, and you'll see a stone with a zigzag motif on it. And that would have been part of a band of zigzag decoration, which again, Romanesque. Yeah. And you can see how in the 18th century they've raised the height of the wall a little bit more with a couple of brick courses. And on this side is um, an original standing medieval wall, but they just pierce new windows in it. If you shield your eyes from the light right above you, yeah. the timbers are all moulded yeah. timbers that yeah. have grooves in them and the angles carved on them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And those are all recycled from the medieval church. Yeah. And all these timbers down here, you can see all these sockets in them. These are part of a medieval okay. roof structure as well. And the, the tiles on this roof, as I say, a lot of those are medieval as well. Mm. I don't know if you want to look outside into the street where you, you were. Oh, going under Big just, yeah, there is a void. Don't put your foot down okay. the void. Okay. Avoid the void. It's this street. It's called the Shambles. Where all the butchers' rows used to be a lot of it, and all the guts and everything would be lobbed out into the middle. And is that where the name comes from. Partly, yeah. That church over there dates from 1785, I think it is. Uh-huh. You can see the uh, tower and the roof that you've just been walking underneath, and some. We have some quite aggressive seagulls around here. Yes. Usually they're worse when they're nesting, which they're not doing at the moment, so you're okay. We've avoided the seagull rotting season. Yes. Yeah. There's one. My friend James. Don't lean too far. <laughs> James! We don't oh. want to be responsible for death. All right, James. All right, James. He's probably thinking, I swear I heard my name from somewhere. Me. He's been <laughs> calling me for the church. Okay. We're back in. So do you want to go to the top of the tower? Do I? Yeah, yeah. I'm just, just checking. So this okay. is the medieval bell frame. The 1432 date that we have for the tower came from those big timbers. Okay. So you yeah. took a little sample and did the den... What's it called? Dendrochronology. Bear with me while I unlock the padlock. Okay. We're in a very dark... Top of the spiral stairs. Alright. So Brian's just opening a hatch in the roof. Extreme boy boy. <laughs> I'm hearing the bells. The hearing other church. The bells of St Martin's you're hearing. Ah. Goodness me. Isn't that beautiful? That's that's supposed to be. Okay, so we've got a great seagull's eye view. Of the town. Are these the Malvern Hills? Over there is the Malvern Hills, yep. Yep. Um, That needle point tower over there, there used to be a church attached to it as well, which was demolished just after the war. There are peregrines nesting on that one, and there's peregrines nesting on the cathedral as well. And so occasionally you come up here and you find half a pigeon (laughs) where uh, a peregrine hasn't quite finished its lunch. Bells are going off all around, aren't they? That little fancy turret over there with the flag, that's Worcester's Guild Hall. And then St Helen's Church just behind that, which is a verifiable Saxon church. There was, there's been a church there since about the 7th century, I think. And, um, and Worcester, like all the towns that end with C-E-S-T-E-R, was a Roman town as well, so it was a Roman fort. So there was a Roman fort occupying 
the high end of the town, which is basically where the guild hall is towards the cathedral, that sort of area. Mm. And there was an Iron Age fort here before that. Once upon a time, the River Severn, which is the reason there's that big green space over there, is because that's a floodplain. But you could ford the River Severn for a long time, so you could yeah. literally just wade across it or take horses across it. Is this <laughs> a lightning rod? No, this is no. a flagpole, oh, okay. but, um, but you can see the lightning conductors on the oh, pinnacles. Yes. So we're yeah. looking at very crenellated... This tower was remodelled in the 1730s, so the pinnacles were added in, the, in that time. I call them knobbly pinnacles because from a distance they just look knobbly. Yeah. But they're actually little flowers, aren't they? Little flowers and leaves. Fine view of the roof of the former Argos building there. Yeah, which we is, can uh, really see it. It's glory <laughs> really now. horrible building. Yeah. It's grim, isn't it? It's so sad, isn't it? You can see all the churches dotted between the very yeah. horrible <laughs> 1960s, well, here, this, this one building here took the entire strip of the city centre, you know? Right, yeah. Imagine how much ancient buildings and archaeology there would have been just in that spot. Yeah. And that, that really horrible one over there is the Travelodge. That complex there demolished the last surviving cathedral lich gate in Europe. Oh. There was a street there called Lich Street, which was a very pretty little street covered in timber frame buildings. Yeah. And there was a very fancy cathedral lich gate. And lich means corpse, yeah. So it was the gate to the cemetery for the cathedral. And people used to rest coffins in lich gates before going on to do the burials and everything. And like I say, the last surviving one in Europe was there. No need. Now there's a travel lodge. Hurrah! Exactly what we all need. (laughs) The case in Worcester was particularly famous and it was referred to as the Rape of Worcester in lots of national papers. Because so many lovely historic areas of the, the, the city were just being pulled down. That area there, for example, where the Travelodge was, it wasn't just Lich Street, it was also the family shop of the Elgar family, the composer Elgar. Oh, wow. Yeah, and there is a blue plaque for Elgar over there, where his shop sort of used to be, Yeah. but, you know, can't put it where it was, because it's gone. I think there were waves of modernism, weren't there, after the war? Yeah. People wanting to rebuild and yeah. think, yeah. think afresh about the world. And yeah. so you kind of got to admire the optimism in a way but um, there was quite a lot of short-sighted planning decisions along the way. So I guess after war and desolation and things of that nature, you, you sense, right, OK, we're going to start afresh, we're going to start a new... Don't, won't fall off the roof. He's <laughs> getting so into it. Straight onto Argos, what a, what a demise. <laughs> hey, I'm feeling very cold. Yes, we're going in. We should, uh... We're going back in. curse of the traffic warden. Yeah, the horrible slip of cursed paper. Gets us all. Gets us all. Straight up to a place called the Mug House Inn, which is in a place called Clans. I think that's how you pronounce it. Clans. 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 This is one of only two pubs in the whole country that is in a graveyard. Where's the other one? I think in Somerset. Um, But it is in consecrated ground. And you have to get through to the pub via the graveyard. Fantastic. So we're just going up a little path. Yeah, and it's actually, you can see gravestones. You're right. And yew trees. Right in it. And it's all higgledy-piggledy, half-timbered. Hello. Oh, lovely. Oh, nice. 
We've got two foxes' heads on the wall, decorated with uh, hats and scarves. I think we've got to have some sort of ale, don't you? So tell me about this book. This is the law of the land. Yeah. Oh, look, here we are. Here we are. Worcester. Worcester. According to a story reported by E.C. Corbett in 1912, there once lived two old women who were witches. Of course. Of course. They made their living by selling spells, doing cures, and putting spells on carts to make them stick in the mud. But if they gave one of the women sixpence, she'd rub the wheel saying, God bless the cart, and sure enough, the cart, you'll be off. So a sort of quick fit. Yeah, <laughs> has to be a registered... Registered witch. Registered witch, yeah. There's something quite nice about the Reader's Digest book because in itself it's a historical document of yeah. the mindset of a 1970s team of writer researchers and their take on what would have been more recent history. It feels to me like the last 40 or 50 years are so much more remote from connections to the past. I was growing up in a little village in like the 80s. There yeah. were still people there that hadn't really left either the village or they might have gone into the local town, but that was, that was it. We used to live next door to this wonderful old woman called Mary, and she'd been there, oh, for years. I mean, she was in her 80s when I was, like, 10, mm. and she always used to come out with little sayings, like, ne'er leave off a cloak before the month of May is out. I'm sorry? Ne'er leave off a cloak before the month What's of May is out. Clothing. As you obviously, as a 10-year-old, running around in shorts, and she would appear from her little allotment next to our gardens. And then disappear. And then just disappear <laughs> in, in a puff of white smoke. There was a lot of that. There was even, you know, those old-fashioned things. I remember the, the coal truck coming, because everything was run still by coal. You'd stoke the boiler by coal. And now, thinking back on that, you know, it wasn't that far away from being drawn by a horse. And you'd wander up into the, to the high street, and the post office would be the grocer's. In fact, it was that post office. I found that first Ladybird book of Dracula. That started everything. That started it all, being so terrified of the cover. And it was a very sort of hidden, dark little area push around things where all the little ladybird books were on the post office was in a little kind of corner in the back yeah. so what, where's our next port of call do you think found it in this which is the this is the book from the, the British Pilgrimage Trust Okay, so here we are, St. Canelm's Well and Church. And there's the, well. there's the well. You can make your way around the east end, I think it says, down some wooden steps. But if the well is anything like this picture, I don't know how we're going to find no, that, because that is completely overgrown and hidden. <laughs> I'm quite tempted to immerse myself in the Droitwich Spa as well. Honestly, if you... Then I could get rid of my contact lenses. Well, this is it, but you've got to get over the fence first. Lots of primroses, aren't they? <gasps> okay, there's people in there. They probably shouldn't intrude. There's people worshipping. What's going on today? Does that just open? I just poke my head in.
patient. A lady's service. Yes, the ladies of the parish. Part of the original building, we've got sort of wattle, uh, yes. wattle and daub. Yeah, there's a little panel showing a woven texture in the front of the pub. Yeah. A nice choice, and it was a good ploughman's. Oh, good. Glad to hear. How was your ham, egg and chips? Very good. Right. On to our next destination. A number of sort of faults of trying to find wells... Justin, have you done I, this I, before? Something I, it's a it's a recent thing of well bothering <laughs> that I've just started, much to my wife's chagrin, yeah. of finding out wherever we're going, it's where is there well. an ancient well? Yeah. As you can imagine, she is usually thrilled at such. Uh, well, you sojourns. gave me that lovely spring water from Kern Abbas. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. That was a lovely well. That was very easy to find. Again, bottom of a churchyard. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the time, they, there were some walkers that were washing their dogs in it. <laughs> so I think that would have been seen as quite a grave heresy back in the day. And that whole area is all about fertility. Yeah. That part. With He's, the not shy, is he? He's not shy. They're not shy. <laughs> yeah, but it's always been an area of if you wanted to have a child or having trouble then you would go take the waters yeah maybe have a little sit in the phallus yeah absolutely in fact that was one of the things that they uh, they used to prescribe is if you wanted it you would go and sleep on uh, the uh, the phallus itself right for a, for a time yeah for an evening yeah, okay. obviously you don't want to go crazy no. so this is St. Kenelm Kenelms St. Kenelms uh, Church and Well yeah which we're going to now, which is in the Clent Hills. That's a nice word, Clent. Clent. Isn't it? Oh, yes. That must be a Celtic word. Got to be. Clent. Just driving past Smite. 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 Near Clent. On the way to Clent. Past Smite on the way to Clent. <laughs> Please do not park in front of this gate. <laughs> Please remove all your valuables from your vehicle. I've brought a little bottle. Tim likes collecting samples. Part of my well-bothering. Yep. Some nice old trees. Yes, lovely, isn't it? And crooked gravestones. Oh, look, it looks like a path down there. Yeah. Quite chilly. Oh. You can see. Ah! Does it say the local scouts? But if you look oh. further down, they have a little votives. Oh yes, look. Okay, yeah, we found the well. So we've got trees with bits of cloth and ribbons and things tied round them. Flowers. And it's a very mossy stone surround. Here we go. The legend of Saint Canelm. It is said that the spring which bursts forth on this site marks the spot where Saint Canelm, Prince of Mercia died. Mm. He was murdered and buried circa 820 AD. It looks a bit muddy. It does look a tad brackish. <laughs> I will I will be honest with you. And Tim is now going to get some muddy water in his... I may, I may not get his white plimsolls very muddy. Never, I think. never the thing. He's filling his little bottle. 
Oh, that's actually very clear. That's actually not bad, is it? Yeah. There we go. I'll bottle that up. How big is your collection? This will be three. So, <laughs> as they say, our collection is is yeah. two. Yeah. So I'm well on the way now. Okay, good. Might as well have a quick look in the church. Look, there's jam. Small jars, 20p. Oh, there's a musty smell. It's very dark. Ah, oh, here we go. The painted glass east window that depicts Christ, but the centre-north details the legend of Kenelm. It is AD 819, and Kenelm, the seven-year-old Anglo-Saxon king of Mercia, dreams of his impending murder. This is wow. the first window. Oh, then it goes to window four for some reason. Quendrida. Kenelm's wicked elder sister, jealous of his good fortune, plots his death with her lover, Ascobert, Kenelm's guardian. Kenelm, tired after a day's hunting, goes to sleep beneath a tree in the woods of Clent. Ah, Clent. Lovely word. Kenelm, awakening, says it is not his destiny to be killed in that place, but in another place, which will be revealed by his planting his staff in the ground. Yep. Kenelm plunges his staff into the ground, whereupon it takes root and grows into a great ash tree. It's quite long, this, by the way. Kenelm kneels to pray. Ascobert slays him, and as he dies, a white dove flies heavenwards. Ascobert buries Kenelm's body under a thorn tree. And the scene shifts to the Basilica of St. Peter at Rome. It's just a sort of jump cut. Just jump cut, that's yeah. all that is. As the Pope celebrates Mass, a white dove flies over the altar and lets fall from its beak a snow-white scroll on which is written, In a cow pasture in Clent, Kenelm, king-born, lies under a thorn of his head bereft. Ooh. A ship bears the emissaries of the Pope to England, where they seek audience with Walfred, the Archbishop of Canterbury. They instruct him that Kenelm's body must be found and given Christian burial. Walfred and the monks are guided to Kenelm's grave by means of a shining column of light and by a white cow, which, the legend says, always gave a double supply of sweet milk. There it is, there's the cow. Bottom left. Okay, that's only halfway through. That's half, that's half <laughs> Jesus the window. Christ. Okay. You got the gist of it. But suffice to say, many miracles were performed in his name. Uh, two are illustrated here, so what's that? Oh. So it's a, a blind man from birth receives his sight, and a prisoner is released from his bonds. I've lost complete control of the numbering system. <laughs> it's a lovely window, actually. It's great, isn't it? Oh, I'm constantly looking oh, at look, yeah. Actually, there's a W here, which is different from the other Ws. Yeah, that looks a very definite W, and that looks like the cross a one. V, yeah. yeah, on the church. We're going to see that everywhere now. Is that an I crossed out again? The Jesus sign? It could be. We're probably just making it up now. <laughs> We've done our day's outings, and it's quite chilly. Especially when you've plunged your hand into an ancient world. Oh, yes. Is it miraculously healed? Well, they're tingly. Did you get any kind of spooky feeling in the church or in the one earlier today? No, I didn't. That's no. not what we want to try. That's it. A couple of churches in a well. Oh, I tell you. Mm. That's a day out. That is a day out.
Folklands was created, written and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb with original music by Justin. Special thanks to Brian Hoggard. For more information on Brian's work, visit www.apotropaos.co.uk where you can order his book, Magical House Protection, The Archaeology of Counter-Witchcraft. Thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.